Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. I want to welcome back to the program. It's 2 o'clock, and that means we are generally going to be talking with Matt Harris. He's the uh, morning co-host of the Matt Ramona Show on Sister Station Mix 107.9. He's also been producing and hosting a podcast on the Alec Murdoch Cases with Seton Tucker. The name of that podcast is Impact of Influence, and it's available on all the major podcasting platforms. Uh, Matt, welcome back. You doing all right? Are you... Uh, so... Uh, you are aware, I'm assuming, about what has occurred uh, this uh, what this morning or I guess this afternoon, right down there with the bomb threat or bomb scare. Yes. Uh, Seton Tucker, my um, co-host of the podcast, uh, was down there, is down there, as the bomb threat occurred. All right. So, so. what what kind of information uh, did she get or relay to you, if any? Uh, just that uh, you know they hustled people out and that the. Uh, police or law enforcement, but various law enforcements, uh, put up a perimeter uh, outside of the courthouse. And that before they went to that, uh, Judge Newman said, well, we have to evacuate and um, might as well do lunch, too. And uh, come back at 2.30. Uh, so that is the plan. But, I, of course, they won't come back if it's not all secure. Uh, but it's just a typical thing in the Alec Murdoch yeah saga we've had for over a year now yeah uh did anybody uh did anybody notice if alec was on the phone at the time the bomb threat was called in <laughs> all right i'm sorry well you know what's really <laughs> funny is uh not funny but i saw one of the talking heads on one of the, the networks and i guess i can make fun of talking heads since i am one yes that's right you are now one you're literally a talking head on tv yeah this is uh anchor whatever she was like do you think this will make the jury hate alec murdoch even more come on (laughs) what are you talking about right how do you know that they uh, there's no way to know that a bomb threat was called to either help or hurt him no there's no way to know that no and there's no way i I mean i can't imagine a jury going well that's it he's guilty yeah (laughs) so um what all right so yesterday and today uh so yesterday afternoon and then again this morning there was uh, and I forget her name, but she was the the gunshot residue expert uh, yeah. from South Carolina law enforcement. She got called up to the stand, and she was kind of going through. Uh, gr- uh, yeah, she was kind of going through uh, her the process of what they found, and this is the the gunshot residue that was found uh, inside the jacket. Right. So, right. W- what did we learn? Okay. Uh- well, I did want to correct one thing yesterday. I thought it was hanging up in the closet. Ah! I, I, I found the exhibit, and it was on the floor in the closet. That so changes clear, everything. The raincoat was. Changes. Was, the raincoat is more like a... Um, Poncho. Uh, what, what's we're looking for? You know, the thing... You Poncho. Yeah, it's yeah. a pon- Yeah, it's a big Poncho with the hood, right? Yeah, and I think that's where, honestly, the state should have been wording it as could have been a Poncho. Right. I think it does make a big difference. But anyway... Um, she testified that inside, on the inside of the poncho, there was gunshot residue. Uh, this makes me still question why Sled didn't test the tarp that they found, which was inside a bin that was labeled like old dishes or something. They didn't test that one for some reason, but they did test the poncho, and uh, there was it was positive for a lot of gunshot residue, but she went on to say that Gunshot residue does not break down over time. There's no way to know how long that gunshot residue was there. Right. She, yeah. It, so she can say that it's there. 
but she can't say how long it's been there or how it got there because it could get transferred too. If somebody uh, was wearing this, maybe they went out shooting, it started raining, they put the thing on, they come home, they take it off, they ball it up, and they throw it in the closet. It could stay there for years. Yes, yes, that's what she said, yes. So I think they're just hoping that the jury just pays attention to gunshot residue, that term, you know, it, it, it resonates, right? You hear gunshot residue, residue on a thing, on a piece of clothing that might have possibly been worn the night because it was raining that night off and on. Right. So, but if you break down and get into deep into the science, there's no way you can connect those two without a, just a really casual, right. He brought something in that was blue and, then why would he, if you think about it, like, why, what, you know, we've talked about it, what was so special about that? Why does he not just throw it in a river somewhere or something? Right, why didn't he dispose of it along with all of the other evidence he disposed of at the same time? Why keep the rain poncho? Um, right. And then why come back and stash it later on? Now, maybe he, maybe he felt he had to stash it because he felt like he was too well-known by that point. He couldn't, um, he, he couldn't like drive off into the middle of nowhere and throw it away or something that that would be seen by law enforcement or whatever. So maybe he, maybe he yeah. was worried about getting caught. Yeah, that is, that, I mean, that's <clears throat> certainly uh, uh, possible. And however, I, yeah, you're right. I mean, that's, that's what they're hoping that the jury will, right. will not care about. They'll just know that there was gunshot residue on something that might have been worn by the guy that might have committed the murders. Right. And when you link it with the uh, the caregiver for Alec Murdoch's mom, who said, I saw him walk in with the rolled up, bunched up, uh, blue tarp looking thing. And then like, okay. And he went upstairs. Okay. And then we find these blue tarp. We found a blue tarp, but we also find this blue poncho and the poncho has gunshot residue on the inside of it. Uh, yeah. And the, the, the agents or the examiner said that uh, this was unusual because Number one, it was inside the jacket, and you don't ever find it inside the jacket. Uh, And number two, uh, there was a large number of these little pieces that they look for. There was a lot of it. And so that would indicate that it was very close by the discharge of a firearm. Now, the defense tried to keep all this out, right? They tried to prevent all of this because they said it would be prejudicial to the jury. Right. Because it's, yeah, it's not like... It's not solid proof, but it's all circumstantial, and eventually you get to enough circumstances where it all lines up, you know? Right, yes. The circumstantial does not mean it's not evidence. (laughs) It just means that there's not an eyewitness or a person who committed said question that's saying it happened. Right. So it's it's still evidence. So uh, we talked a little bit about the financial crimes aspect of it, uh, but we did see a new witness that came uh, today uh, regarding the financial crimes uh, component, right? This was uh, Alec Murdoch's paralegal right. who initially, what she's one of the first people that, that figured out something was amiss with the, with the yeah. money. Yeah, and she, and, and she saw a check that Alec, Alec was not really good with the criminal uh, indica- uh, you know, uh, side of self because he was just willy-nilly, apparently, laying checks laying around, and so she saw a check. But this the check she saw was uh, before the Labor Day Labor Day weekend suicide for hire, whatever it was, shooting when the, the uh, law firm fired him. So that's when she saw the big evidence. But she she started to see some on the right before June seventh, and uh, so she you know she testified that he was also acting erratically. Um, and that after the murders, he was completely, he acted completely different. He was never yelling at anybody anymore. 
He hardly ever came to work. That sort of thing. So I think they're trying to are they trying to lead to uh, lead to drug use? Is that the idea here? Yeah. Well, what's What's interesting though to me is I thought maybe the defense would be thrilled with the opioids coming into play. Right. Right. They can write some of the the things off, like his timeline being weird. Well, he was high or whatever. Right. Um, but they tried to keep out this letter from rehab that uh, Alec had written, and the uh, his his uh, paralegal was on the stand and was going to read the letter that he had written, and they wanted it to Alex's team wanted it to be clear that it didn't come from rehab or don't mention the opioids or you know any of that. And just read the parts that don't say that. So uh, that was interesting to me that. They wanted that part out. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess they're going to try, and I guess at this point the jury hasn't heard any of that component of any of this, the, that he went to the rehab or whatever. I did, no. uh, and the last point on this with the paralegal I thought uh, was interesting is that uh, they were asking her, uh, as they asked, what's her name, Jeannie Seckridge, the, uh, uh, the office Secretary. manager, yeah, yeah. that they asked her the same thing, and she gave the same answer, which was that when uh, when Alex's father went into the hospital, and then when his uh, wife and son were murdered, all of the investigating into the finances, everything stopped, and everyone rallied around Alec, and everybody was feeling bad for him and trying to help him out and all this stuff. And so it seems like they are really leaning hard into this uh, into this motive being that he felt like he could keep the wolves at bay right by getting by getting sympathy and i like that's such it's such a foreign idea to me so maybe i'm yeah. hard, having a hard time understanding that i am having a hard time understanding it too because it's not like they're saying the state's not saying he killed them so no one would ever find out right he's saying they killed him to delay it right that that is you know, again, we aren't murderers, as far as I know, um, so we don't think that way, but you're going to delay people finding out, so you're going to shoot your son in the face. Right. I mean, come on, you know, that is, that's a leap for most sane people. Right, and so that's why, yeah, like, that's, a, that's psychopathic thinking, and so I don't know if that's... Is that something that maybe that's going to come piggybacking in on the drug use? I don't know. But, uh, yeah. I yeah. know, I know. Well, if, if Cousin Eddie shows up, Eddie Smith, who was part of the Labor Day mess that happened, Labor Day weekend mess, where Alec either paid for him or didn't pay for him to shoot him and blah, blah, blah. If he comes in, uh, will drugs come in again? Because Alec has been paying Eddie a million dollars or two million dollars over something like that over the last five years to allegedly run drugs for him. Right. All right, uh, Matt Harris, I appreciate the time, sir. Uh, also, uh, just for the record, not a murderer. I am not a murderer, <laughs> neither, uh, and uh, neither is Matt, apparently. Uh, but we'll chat again tomorrow, sir. Thank you. Okay, man. All right, buddy, appreciate it. That's Matt Harris, co-host of the Matt Ramona Show on Mix 107.9. In the mornings also, he does the podcast Impact of Influence about all of the Murdoch. This is what I started listening to, his podcast, uh, when he first started doing it. Because, like, it's been a fascinating case. So I've been listening to the podcast. You should as well. It's on all the major podcasting platforms. And he and uh, his co-host, Seton Tucker, they're going to be actually filling in. Uh, that'll be tomorrow night and then Friday night, 7 till 8 p.m. right here on WBT.
News Talk 1110-993-WBT. So the uh, financial component of the Alec Murdoch case has been allowed into evidence, which is why now we're seeing all of the uh, testimony from uh, the law firm employees. They're going to be bank employees as well. I uh, believe they had the guy, uh, Richard Gunn. I know now you've got, for real, Richard Gunn is the guy who runs Forge Consultancy. So you got a guy named Murder who committed forgery and accused of doing the murder with a gun. Like, this really, it's like cartoonish. It's a, it is, it's all the names. Anyway, so uh, this consultancy firm, basically, it does its structured annuities. So when a client gets a massive payout, from suing a, a, a product or a service or something for some injury, right? They, they run the money through these structured uh, uh, structures, I guess, a structured settlement. They run through this consultancy, Forge Consultancy. It's a legitimate company. And what they do is they basically create annuities for you so you get paid out over the course of years and years and years so the money never runs out. That's the idea. You can live off of this money forever. So it's a large chunk of money, right? They put it into this vehicle, kicks off money forever, and, uh, like a lottery, right? Where you you can take the annuity or you could take the lump sum payment, right? Okay. So uh, what Alec is accused of doing is creating two different bank accounts, one at Palmetto State Bank and one at Bank of America, and he called them, he put them under his name, but he called them DBA, doing business as Forge, not Forge Consultancy, but Forge. And so he would get checks and he would route them through to his personal accounts. And so that's what they're presenting evidence about uh, on the one front. Now, the other front here is that because of, quote, the boat case, which Alec immediately referenced when uh, the when he called the police, when the cops showed up, when every time he was talking about the, the murders of his wife and son, he kept referencing the boat case. And look, a lot of people in the area blamed Paul for the death of Mallory Beach in the boat case. It was a crash. Paul was drunk driving, allegedly, ran the thing into a bridge, and she was killed. And they found her body downriver like eight days later or something. The Beach family went and hired a lawyer named, uh, what's his name, Tinsley. And they put him on the stand outside the presence of the jury the other day, and he then makes this argument that because they were suing Alec, for negligent parenting. They were suing Alec personally, civilly. They wanted to know how much money he had because he and his lawyers and his, his, his folks were saying, why are you going after Alec? He's broke. And what Tinsley said is, I know that's not true. I know he's not true. Uh, that's not true. I know he's not broke. You asked for financial information from Parker's. It was that's a convenience store. Because it related to punitive damages, correct? It, it, it was different than the motion that was related to Alec. Because the law is how much money you have is a factor for punitive damages, correct? Well, you, you're, you're making statements of law. I'm telling you what was happening, and what was happening was is that Alec's lawyers knew what the evidence was. They knew what the amendment was going to be and the allegations. And he knew ultimately he was going to be back in front of Judge Hall making some ridiculous argument that I appears you're suggesting now. All right, so 
so hostile witness to say the least, right? This guy's a lawyer. He's and the defense attorney is asking him these questions. There and this lawyer, this uh, Tinsley guy, was going after Alec, who's now represented by Jim Griffin and Dick Harputlian. And so, uh, what uh, Tinsley is lining up here is the timeline to say we were going to court three days after Maggie and Paul were murdered. We're going to court to to get his financials, which means what? That that Monday, Alec was putting together the papers. He was gathering the, he was supposed to be gathering the financials to give them to his lawyer, Danny Ferguson, and, or Henderson rather, to give them to his lawyer so his lawyer could argue in court that Alec was broke. That was the idea here. But what happens when Danny Henderson sees the financials? He real, He's going to realize that Alec had been stealing from their firm because Danny Henderson was his partner. Danny Henderson was a partner at the law firm. Uh, and, and again, you know, the issue is, is not that complicated. It's does he have the ability to pay? Is he broke such that these people sh- should uh, accept this pitiful offer if he could cobble it together? But, sir, that's not what you get on a motion to compel, is it? Right. You, you're, you're, you just said ability to pay so your client can make a decision on whether to accept a settlement offer, but that is not what the motion to compel is about, is it? It's about evidence for trial. The motion That's to the compel- legal standard, is it not? No, the motion to compel was about putting pressure on Alec. I right. didn't really give two cents about whether or not uh, he ultimately had money, because I knew he had money. I didn't need those things. The fact that he didn't want me to have them is the reason that I'm pushing it. So, I just didn't know why he didn't want me to have them at the time. I do now. So the motion to compel was to put pressure on Alex. It wasn't about an expectation the judge was actually going to give you this stuff on, on June 10th? If you're a good plaintiff's lawyer, everything you do in a case is to put pressure on the other side. But the expectation of the outcome of a hearing on June 10th was not that you're going to get to launch a full-scale forensic audit because you had a conversation with someone who said, whose lawyer said, oh, he's, he's broke, and you didn't believe it. Not at that stage of the litigation, sir, is it? That's not what's, what's going to happen, is it? I don't think you need a full-scale forensic audit for something a five-year-old could see. Yeah. Um, so, no. <laughs> so, no. Yeah, I, that the the defense attorney, I, I apologize, that was not Jim Griffin. Um, it was somebody else. I don't know his name, but he did not do a good job. He was. They were arguing about motion to compel and all this. And you hear him say, you hear Tinsley say it. This is just about pressuring Alec to settle. I don't care to see the financials. It doesn't matter. I know he has the money. It doesn't matter to me if he's got a, a $100 million or $200 million, whatever. I know he's got a lot of money. And I know what number we're looking to get. And if we got to compel him to produce it, so be it. But that wasn't even really the point, because if Alec had to prepare, if the lawyers had to prepare to go before the judge, they needed that stuff ahead of time, which would have put the timeline. The The hearing was the 10th and the murders were the 7th when he was gathering the financials. And meanwhile, the company was starting to f- figure out that he had been stealing from them. <laughs> News Talk 1110-993-WBT-704-570-1110-1800-WBT-1110. We're talking about the Alec Murdoch case down in Colleton County, South Carolina. And uh, Charles, thanks for hanging on. Welcome to the program. How are you? 
I'm doing well. Thank you for having my call. Sure. Um, I, I find this a fascinating case, as you do. Yeah. Um, the problem I'm stuck on is they say you don't need a motive for a conviction. That's where I'm stuck, though, because he has to be a true psychopath to think that what he's accused of doing, murdering his son and, and his wife, to cover or delay the financial crimes that are going to catch up to him anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I'm stuck on. And right now, um, I'm trying to you know piece that together in my head. To me, the most damning evidence I've seen so far against him, I think the gunshot residue on the raincoat can be explained. Whether what you know, you know whether they can do it good or not, I don't know. Right. It's the Snapchat call that Paul made, where you hear that third voice. Right. And everybody's saying it's Alec. You know, I don't know how this man sounds, but everybody else that knows him says it's 100% it's Alec, and he's claiming he's not down there. Right. Um, on the defense side, I'm working on that motive. I'm saying to the, the jury, how can you go kill? Because he he seems to be a loving father and husband. I haven't heard anything about infidelity. Right. Um, how do you jump from these financial crimes to murdering my son and wife in the way that was done too, horrifically? And they still haven't recovered those weapons. So it's a fascinating case, but uh, I'm like you. I can't get enough of it. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. these are the questions that I have as well. I can't, I, I can't get to uh, – I think the prosecution is going to have to offer some kind of explanation for why that's the motive. And it may be that he is, be, he is right. insane. He be, and if it is true, then he is a total psychopath. Right. He's, He's just as evil as some of the most evilest people in history. Right. There was a so I'm reminded of a uh, right after 9/11. There was a professor at Queens University who did a, a public uh, uh, community forum thing talking about uh, terrorism, and she said there are three kinds of terrorists, and uh, one there there the three C's: the criminals, the crazies, and the crusaders. And you know, you may be dealing with somebody, and the difference was that the criminals and the and the the crazies all tend to believe they're going to survive whatever the, the hostage-taking event is, so you can actually negotiate with them. Crusaders don't. So, uh, But on the, on the crazy one, she mentioned a, a case, it was a famous case or whatever, some guy saw a billboard, said, take your family to Disney or something, and so he went and hijacked a plane and said, fly me to Disney. And, like, we try to understand that, and we can't, right? Is that what the... We can't. We're rational, that's why. right. And so is this is this essentially the same sort of argument that the state is going to have to uh, make to the jury to say, look, you're going to try to understand this from a rational perspective and you're not going to be able to do it. But I, I think then they're going to have to bring on some like psychological experts, right? Absolutely, because if the walls are closing in, he absolutely chose the, the absolute worst option that you could do. Right. There was no other worse option than what he did, uh, allegedly. Right. So it's going to be tough. I, I wouldn't be surprised for a hung jury. I really wouldn't. It is a possibility. As of right now. As of right now. Yeah, it is a possibility. Uh, Charles, I appreciate it, man. Thank you. All right, bud. See you. Uh, no, these are all good questions. And look, I don't, I, I don't know if he did it or not. There's only one person in that courtroom right now that knows whether Alec Murdoch killed his wife and son. And it's him. He's the only one that knows. For sure. So I don't know, and I'm not going to make a prediction on uh, on what the jury is going to do because I don't I, I don't know how. I mean, juries make really bad decisions a lot. Things that everybody else focuses on and doesn't even come up in jury deliberation sometimes, and vice versa. They spend a lot of time talking about stuff that nobody on the outside 
thinks is important. Um, maybe we'll find out afterwards, you know, uh, what some of those discussions were. And there, there was a there was a local lawyer from uh, Gaston County, Monroe Whitesides, rest in peace. Um, but I started working with Monroe years and years ago, uh, covering one of the trials. I don't remember which one. It may have been the Ray Carruth trial. I don't remember. But uh, I would ask him questions, and he would come on as like our legal, our, our lawyer, and he would you know go over elements of the story. He represented the snitch in the. Uh, uh, sorry, I don't know if they like the word snitch per se. The informant, shall we say, uh, in the Loomis Fargo heist. And um, at any rate, uh, he, he told me a story one time after uh, a particular jury trial and somebody, I, I forget how, like they, they were clearing out the, the papers after the jury trial was over. And I don't remember if he had won or lost or whatever, but somebody, one of the jurors on one of the scraps of paper had uh, drawn like a little hangman, <laughs> you, know, the, you know, when you play hangman, the little cartoon that you, the game that you play. And somebody had drawn that. So you never know what what people are saying and, and thinking when they're in there. Um, all right, so let me get – there's a couple of other sound bites here. This is Tinsley, that same lawyer. Uh, the back and forth between this lawyer with the defense attorney, I, I just loved it. I just loved it because this lawyer on the stand, this personal injury lawyer, was having none of what this defense attorney was was trying to shovel. Look, I, again, it, what it says is, is that once Mr. Tiller gets the information from Alec, Tiller is Alex's lawyer, who is a partner in the firm. Gives it to me. If necessary, if I deem it insufficient, then we'll have another hearing and we'll argue about it. So, so that's what it's I a voluntary expect. disclosure, and then if you deem that insufficient, we go have a motion to compel here? That's the way motions to compel go every single day. So if you deemed... It insufficient. If if the court actually had to issue an order on your motion, what you would have gotten every you've gotten his um, would the law firm books have been open to you? I don't know that I'm asking for the law firm books. I'm asking for Alex. Right. Would accounts. you you have gotten what a financial statement? No. The court would have ordered uh, every account detail listed to you, all his personal accounts, just because you asked for it to inform a settlement decision? I was asking for the names of the institutions where he had accounts. I've told you that. Right, to subpoena. Sure. And, but that's different. And that would have been resisted means. and there would have been further litigation. This, this process would have taken some time, wouldn't it, if it was resisted, right? I'm not sure if what was resisted. All right, so what, he's do, what the defense attorney is trying to do right now is to raise this idea that the walls weren't closing in on Alec, that this wasn't... Um, uh, the, just because the hearing was set for June 10th and the murders occurred three days prior, right as Alec was gathering up all the financial information and right as the lawyers were getting ready to go to this hearing. And that hearing was for a motion to compel where there, where the Tinsley is saying, I, I want the court to compel Alec to cooperate. Give me all of the records. And if the court had said, all right, yeah, hand them over, you'd have to have them. And so what the state is saying is like, this is the, this is the gathering storm. Right. This is the this is the problem. The walls closing in. Whatever analogy you want to use. This is why Alec was was under all this pressure. And what the defense is trying to say is, no, no, no. This is just a motion to compel. There are a lot of other steps after this. Yeah, I don't have to worry about it. You're gonna, you know, you're gonna do this hearing. And even if you won the hearing, which I don't even know if you would have won the hearing, but I mean, 
that then there was this longer process. So because if they can shoot holes in this idea that Alec was feeling the pressure of the walls closing in on him during this three or four day period, right? If if they can shoot enough holes in this theory, then the motive that he felt compelled to commit the heinous murders, uh, the, the the whole motive thing falls apart. And then you're just left with the question, well, why would you do this? And what evidence is there that you did it? And there there isn't any physical proof, except for the video, as Charles mentioned, that video that puts him at the dog kennels, and yet he said repeatedly in all the interviews that he never was at the kennels. He always said that. That's a that's a lie. And do you right, do you convict him based on that? News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. All right, got a bunch of messages and emails here. Let's clear them out. All right, regarding the uh, last hour's topic of the ACLU of North Carolina's lobbyist, um, Bob says, Pete, give her hell. Should I send her a clock and a sundial? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Mike says, Pete, the left wants us to believe equity is equality. They are not the same thing. What is now called equity used to be called affirmative action, but it was eventually exposed as reverse discrimination, so it needed to be a rebranded, and equity was born. Yeah, yeah equity is... Yeah, well, equ- I'm old enough to remember when equity meant money. Like you had some stake, a financial stake, right? Um, Joseph says, the commies at the ACLU are really scraping the bottom of the diversity barrel to make this low-IQ, low-impulse control vulgar woman one of their lobbyists. These Twitter malcontents may have to consider that breaking the same Starbucks windows every few years in some city with the tacit approval of the authorities is not the same as targeting people in real life. It may not turn out how they think it will. Wink. Wink. Ah, uh, yes. Well, I just, I, I always want to, I always want to uh, uh, maintain uh, some sort of uh, operational advantage vis-a-vis surprise, you know? It's one of the things, usually when someone communicates threats, as this individual did against me, uh, they most most of the time they are not real threats. Most of the time they're just keyboard warriors running their, I was going to say mouths, but fingers. Um, they have no intention if this person is who I think it is, because I. that's the other thing. It's like they, they say these things and they, they never face any repercussions for doing so, and uh, I have not... I mean, I wasn't really even considering it, but now it's like, well, maybe I should file a police report, right? Maybe I should. The, the tweet's been taken down, but maybe somebody needs to go pay a, a, a pay this guy a visit if, in fact, it is this guy that I think I've identified. If so, then he didn't cover his tracks very well, um, but he's also not local, so I don't know. Um, I thought about it, but usually it's it's nothing, uh, and they're you know it's just Twitter talk. And it's not the first, won't be the last, I'm sure. Um, what else here? I had to, 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 to had something else. Where was it? Oh, yeah. Gary says, is there some local uh, black abolitionist group in Charlotte or North Carolina that are these super leftist activists? I have never heard of these people until your crazy 7 p.m. lady. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, no, I mean, there's, there, it's not a critical mass. Let's say it that way. It is not a critical mass. There are some, there are these, you know, rabid leftists that are out there. Yes, absolutely. Um, but the vast majority of people are not. Um, Richard says, uh, Pete, regarding the Twitter fight, the second Twitter name uh, that's interacting with her account is probably her as well. Look at the extremely low number of posts and followers, right? That is another tactic that people will do as well, where they uh, create uh, dummy accounts, sock puppet accounts is what they're called sometimes, where it's just them posing as somebody else and then they retweet each other and they like each other's tweets and it gives this impression that you actually have support when you do not and i know they don't have support because i got messages all day long yesterday from people who are not exactly politically aligned with me let me say (laughs) and uh they would they would point out that you are completely in the right this woman is unhinged holy cow so And then they were lamenting the fact that they didn't have any of their left-wing allies. Where are all our allies? Which to me would be indicative of uh, maybe I'm wrong, but, but not them. No, no. It's definitely everybody else. Yeah. All right. I'll see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.